three men were asked, what do they want to hear? What do you want to hear at your funeral? One said, well, I want to hear people say he was a kind man. That's good, isn't it? Another one said, I, I, I want to hear that I was a good father. That's, that's, that's good. The third guy said, I want people to say, oh, look, he's moving. <laughs> Welcome to Easter Sunday morning. God's good. Luke 23, if you've got a Bible, we're going to read a portion and uh, going to talk for a little while around it. Luke 23. And I'm reading from the Passion Translation. I'll start at verse uh, 32. It's the, it's the crucifixion story, and we're going to just take a truth out of it. Two criminals were led away with Jesus, and all three were to be executed together. When they came to the place that is known as the skull, the guards crucified Jesus, nailing him on the center cross between the two criminals. While they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he prayed over and over, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The soldiers, after they crucified him, gambled over his clothing. A great crowd gathered to watch what was happening. The religious leaders sneered at Jesus and mocked him, saying, Look at this man. What kind of chosen Messiah is this? He pretended to save others, but he can't even save himself. The soldiers joined in the mockery by offering Jesus a drink of vinegar. Over Jesus' head on the cross was written an inscription in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. It said, This man is the king of all the Jews. And all the soldiers laughed and scoffed at him, saying, Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? One of the criminals hanging on the cross next to Jesus kept ridiculing him, saying, What kind of Messiah are you? Save yourself and save us from this death. The criminal hanging on the other cross rebuked the man, saying, Don't you fear God? You're about to die. We deserve to be condemned, for we're just being repaid for what we've done. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said, I beg of you, my Lord Jesus, show me grace and take me with you into your everlasting kingdom. Jesus responded, I promise you this very day you will enter paradise with me. It was now only midday, yet the whole world became dark for three hours as the light of the sun faded away. And suddenly in the temple, the thick veil hanging in the holy place was ripped in two. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, I surrender my spirit into your hands. And he took his last breath and died. Incredible. The reality of the, the crucifixion, eh? probably the most gruesome way to die. And... Um, do you ever say, want to say to God, God, I just wouldn't have done it like that? You know, about this, about life, anybody? His ways are not our ways. I wouldn't have done any of the story. I, you read, you know, you read the book from Genesis to Revelation, I wouldn't have done any, any of it like that, would you? But God knows what he's doing. And he's showing us something incredible. Here you've got this picture of the moment Jesus dies on the cross and the enemy thinks he's won but God's up to something can you say that God is up to something 
Yeah, say it to the person next to you. Go on, because they need to hear it today. God is up to something. Tell them it's not what you think. Yeah. Just tell them again, you wouldn't have done it like that. But guess what? Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. You're not God. And he is. So uh, you can stop repeating everything now. So buckle up, because when God moves, he does incredible things. But he does them with incredible meaning and incredible purpose and incredible power. And so here we have the saviour of the world, the Lamb of God, dying on the very spot where, well, if we go thousands of years before, where Abraham is tested to offer his first son, his firstborn son, uh, as a test of his faith. Uh, the place where he walked to, having traveled a thousand miles, God then says, I want you to walk three more days and I want you to give me your son, your only son. And uh, can you imagine those three days? Abraham didn't tell Sarah. Abraham didn't tell his son. Can you imagine those nights when Abraham lay on the dusty ground, perhaps with a stone for a pillow, looking at his son that he'd waited decades to have through promise, watching his son go to sleep, who could have been anything from a teenager to 30 years old, and, you know, people vary in their estimates, and looking at the son, watching him fall asleep, knowing just two more nights. Dad, but where's the lamb? The child falls asleep, unaware, and Abraham teary-eyed, looks at his son under the stars in the middle of the night. God, you promised me more sons than there are stars in the sky, and now I've got to give up my only one. One more night. God, I wouldn't have done it like that. And in the, in the very geographical spot where thousands of years later Jesus will die, Abraham is just about, he, he, he passes the test, a test that is there to reveal his faith, not really to prove him wrong, it's really to show you, Abraham, look how far you've come. That having waited decades for the promise, you are still willing to give up the promise out of love for me. That's the greatest test of our heart, isn't it? I'll give you everything as long as you'll give it up. That's always the test. And just as he's about to draw the knife, there's a ram in the thicket. And on the mountain of the Lord, he provides. Or uh, uh, another uh, version, if you go deep into the language, would be on the mountain of the Lord, all becomes clear. Wow. You suddenly see it. And then fast forward, you know, oh, what would it be? A thousand, a little bit more than that, years or so. And there's David in the same spot geographically. Out of the whole world here in this same spot, there's David. And he's counted the size of his army. In other words, it's all about the arm of flesh, what I can do, how powerful are we really. And God, for whatever reason, it's a bit of a mystery. Again, you would go, God, I kind of wouldn't have done it like that. We don't, we don't understand God, do we? And even though we've got the Bible and the Holy Spirit, I don't think we understand him much better, really, do you? He's still God and we're... We're down here. So uh, David has annoyed God and the angel of the Lord is striking down uh, 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 thousands of people. And uh, uh, David comes to the threshing floor of Aronai, the Jebusite, which is 
basically at Mount Moriah where Abraham had tested his, been tested. And he buys the threshing floor and creates an altar of worship to God and the angel of the Lord stops. And then the temple of the Lord is built right in that spot. And then years later, Jesus is crucified just outside the walls of that spot. Um, God's up to something, don't you think? And in that temple was a perfect example of of the human condition, really, that there was a holy God behind a thick veil that no one could go near and no one could touch. And then the outside world was full of dust and muck and uh, animal poo and sacrifices and blood. And I mean, you know, you go back a couple of thousand years and imagine what this, what this, what this old um, society and town would have been like to you and I who, you know, get to shower once or twice a day, it would have felt like a mucky, smelly existence. There was no air conditioning. You couldn't pop through the McDonald's drive through because you fancied a Coke, full fat, no ice. That's just my vice. No other Coke will do. No, this was a, a messy world, and yet, behind a thick veil, God. And this is a a picture, really, of right back to the very beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this picture of man living among a holy God, pure, naive, shameless, unafraid. Come on, wasn't it wonderful? Don't you want to thump Adam, right? You know, uh, here you have this world, but Adam fails, just eating some fruit. Come on, kids, tell your mum and dad that next time, right? They try and get you to eat fruit. Well, look what it did to Adam and Eve. Fruit is made for apple pies and things like that, and apple crumbles. But they eat of the fruit, and God banishes them from his presence. That's what the thick veil meant. It was the equivalent of the angel with the sword flashing back and forward at the entrance to the garden. You're banished from the presence of God. So you're in one place unholy, and I'm in another holy. And the two can't meet because God is pure and undefiled, and his, his purity is beyond our comprehension. Man cannot come near to God. You and I cannot come near to God. In fact, you would never think it in our own minds because we're very good at our own self-importance, aren't we? But actually, in our own state, we are enemies of God, you and I. Literally, and not just passive. You think, well, I was, you know, neither here nor there. No, no, no. You in your raw state are an enemy of the purity of heaven. And then this most incredible moment here in the Bible. At the moment he hangs on the cross. And while one man on one side is ridiculing and saying, come on, if you really are a saviour, get us down from here. His entitlement is on full show. Come on, save us, get us out of this. And on the other side, there's the humility. Isn't it like the prayer of the, of the tax collector and the man who was aware of his sin, who just beat his chest and said, what am I worthy of God? And here is this other guy hanging on the other cross, looking to the Lord and saviour of the world, knowing, yeah, Lord Jesus... Just doesn't even quite say save me, does he? He just says, don't forget me. Anybody feel forgotten? You're not even quite sure what to pray. Just remember me. Notice me. 
and the saviour of the world, in between forgiving the world, forgive them, Father, they know that what they do, in between the agony of every breath, in between his disintegrating body on that cross, has the wherewithal and the time to lovingly look at a criminal and say, you'll be with me in paradise today. Wow. I, I, I was, I was uh, listening to a little piece about that moment. You know, what happens when that guy gets to the pearly gates and the angel said, and your name is, and he gives his name, and, and right, so, you know, what church did you go to? You know, and do you know the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith? He said, no, no. Um, uh, do, do, do you understand Greek, the Greek and Hebrew scriptures? Uh, no. Why are you here? Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's all I know. Have you seen that little, said it much better than I said it, but sometimes all it takes is the man on the middle cross to say, coming in. And in that moment, the man on the middle cross dies, unknown to the devil, taking the sin of the world with him in that death. Taking your sin, your criminal acts before God. My criminal acts? Yes, our selfishness, our thoughtlessness, our self-obsession, our pride, our ego. And if you're not full of it, well, I certainly know I am. Anybody? Come on, get real. We're enemies of God in our raw state. And yet there he was 2,000 years ago. In fact, you would even say before the foundation of the world theologically, he takes the sin of the world with him. And in the moment that he takes the sin of the world away, the veil begins to tremble in the temple. The equivalent of those angels with the flashing swords that keeps us from the very presence and peace and shameless perfection of who God is. That beautiful, naive state of just me and God and living and life and no more fear and imposter syndrome and and shame and guilt they were just living at peace with God but then there was a veil but in the moment he dies the veil begins to tremble not at the bottom at the top because God was ripping it not man and he ripped that veil that was several inches thick ripped it in two and suddenly a holy God could be accessed once again by unholy people why because he sees us as holy, even while we're being made holy. Yeah. Wow. It's the only way to do it. Because I'm not going to make a robot of you and perfect you in one go. I'm going to take my time. Because you're a son. You're, you're, yes, you're a stone, but you're a living stone. I want to handle you gently with my own fingers. I don't want to bash you with a hammer. I want to form you into the image of Christ. But how can I bring you close enough to do that? Well, I'm going to make you holy while I'm making you holy. Let's do it that way. I'm going to put you in Christ. I'm going to seat you in heavenly places with him. I'm going to make you one with my perfect son because he took the punishment for everybody. Say to the person next to you, I wouldn't have done it like that. No, we wouldn't have, wouldn't we? We don't get it. And sometimes that's why we reject it, because it doesn't make sense. That's why this isn't called a logic. This is called a faith. I just trust that he knows what he's doing. We've got a book that's a bit crazy in places. I just trust that he knows what he's showing me. I know he's not showing me everything. I know I don't get it all. I know there's imperfections to the translations, but somehow the God of the universe breathes down through the ages into my imperfect world and he speaks to me. Yeah. And the, 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 the renting, the, the, the ripping of that veil means so much. It means while we live in a broken world and we're still dealing with our own brokenness, 
that in the midst of all that, you can know inside the perfect peace that Adam and Eve knew before they fell. You are as at peace with God as Adam and Eve were. Now, don't go get naked on me. You are as shameless as Adam and Eve were. There was, their, their beauty was seen, if you read it. The, the beauty of Adam and Eve was in their naivety. It was naive trust. And that's what the enemy undermined and caused them to, to sin. Naive trust that makes you a child of the king is available to you. Isn't that beautiful? Peace. I'm right with God. Even though half your brain is going, but I wouldn't be doing life like this, God. And I wouldn't have done that. And I wouldn't have done Ukraine like this. And I wouldn't have built your church like that. And I certainly would have done a better job with them over there. But peace is available if we just trust him. So the veil is torn and we can know the perfect internal state of Adam and Eve today. Which could be summed up by the word justified, righteous. Which can be much more easily said, and let's stick with this, at peace with God. No longer his enemy. He has soaked up my selfishness by his saviour. And now I am at peace with God. Isn't it beautiful? And then I want to focus in on one aspect that has returned to our hearts that was missing for thousands of years. And it's this. In Genesis 3.8, you catch this beautiful phrase. It's one of my favourites. And it says this. That they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I'll say it again. They heard the voice walking. Come on, whisper it. They heard the voice walking. One of the ways to see God is to understand that he's a voice. And they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the day. You know what they did? They hid themselves. I wonder if some of us haven't quite grasped the beauty of the torn veil and the restored Eden that is available to our hearts. I wonder if maybe some of us still hide from the voice of God. We're willing to listen to the voice of religion. We're willing to sing the songs and go to the services. But what about the voice of your Savior to you? One of the most beautiful things restored to us not just forgiveness of sins, not just peace with God and peace in our hearts, not just healing and strength and power available to us today, but think of this for a moment. He restored the voice of God to us. He made it so that his voice walks in your garden once again. You get to hear God, not through a priest. You get to hear God. Come on. So he dies to take the sin of mankind. He rises again with victory over death. The sting of death is gone. That's why so many Christian funerals are celebrations. And half the room are going, can't wait to be with you. See you soon. See you in a minute. And when you're going through a hard time, don't you slightly think, God, now would be a good time. Zap me. I'm ready. 
I could do with a cloud and a harp right now. He conquered death. Then he ascends and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, which is a picture of his pure authority and his absolute relaxed state being in control. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and he pours out something beautiful on us, people. He pours out his own Holy Spirit into our hearts, onto us, into our souls, into our beings. And the result of that, Acts chapter 2, go read it this week, is that we experience dreams and visions and prophecies. In other words, he poured out the voice that walks in the garden once again into our souls. The voice that speaks and transforms transforms mankind the very voice that spoke into the chaos in Genesis 1 and suddenly whole worlds were created has been poured into your heart by the death resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit you got the voice of God and he does beautiful things and the voices in our hearts I don't know about you I found in my life The voice of God changes everything. I love the Bible. Anybody else? And and, and I'll read it. I'll study it. I'll do the Greek. I'll do the Hebrew. I'll I'll go. I'll have fun with it. But don't you long for the moment when, oh, hang on a minute. That verse wasn't there before. You know, after 40 years of reading it, who put that verse there? And something leaps off the page into your heart. And you know, while I've got the logos, the the, the word of God, Jesus himself said, but man cannot live by bread alone. He lives by every rhema, the other word for the word of God, which is the uttered word, the gushing forth word. When God poured out his Holy Spirit, he gushed forth the voice of heaven into our very souls. There's a fire on your head that's not there to 